Welcome back to a freshly squeezed episode of the Flowscape Podcast. I am Sawyer Stinchfield, and with me today is without a doubt our biggest guest yet. She graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a master's in education with a specialty in human sexuality. She has her PhD in human sexuality, marriage, and family life education from New York University. She has appeared on shows such as Oprah, The Rachel Ray Show, and Good Morning America, just to name a few. Considered a leader in the field of human sexuality and personal relationships, please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Logan Levkoff. Thank you so much for having me. That is such a, a big introduction. Hopefully, I can live up to all of it, or at least some of it. <laughs> no, no, I, I have no doubts that you can live up to, to all of those. Um, so just before we start, um, give everybody a little bit of background about yourself. Um, and then um, we are currently also in Tel Aviv, Israel doing a podcast during one of the biggest protests uh, going on right now. Um, so uh, there there could be some noise, but it just adds a little bit. Element. But yeah, just give everybody a little bit of background about yourself um, and then the connection between me and you um, out here in Tel Aviv, Israel. All right. Sounds good. So I am a sexologist and sexuality educator by profession. I, I've been doing this since I was 15 years old as a peer HIV and AIDS educator in Long Island, New York. My parents became really involved in HIV and AIDS awareness. And I came home one day in 10th grade and there were condoms and bananas on our dinner table. And my parents were like, this is how you use a condom. And next week you go to training to train others. And I just thought, oh, this is new, but okay, fine. And it just evolved. And so I've, I'm so lucky. I design and implement sex ed programs in a lot of schools. I work with organizations. I, I've had a really lovely media career. I I spent three seasons, the first three seasons on this batshit crazy show called Married at First Sight. And uh, and here we are in Tel Aviv, which is obviously one of my most favorite places. So it is quite a treat. So um, if anybody is wondering how I got such a um, sophisticated, uh, well-known personality to come on this podcast that has less than 100 followers in three months on Instagram, uh, much better on Spotify. Um, if you're, in case you're wondering... Um, Dr. Levkov's son is a uh, Maverick, um, was actually out here playing in the same Israeli league, a uh, hockey league that I'm playing in. Um, but he is currently off doing some bigger and better things than playing uh, semi-pro hockey with a bunch of uh, semi-pro and professional guys who just can't give up the dream of playing. Um, so why don't you give everybody a little bit about, um, you know, what he's doing and um, what brought your family out here? Ah, so we are, um, this is not my first trip to Israel. I've been here many times, though I, I will say every time feels like the first. I, I, I love this place. And so my husband and I are out here vacationing because we wanted to spend time away from our children for the summer. We have, I have an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old. Our 14-year-old is at its sleepaway camp in the States and it's like, peace out, see ya. I'll see you at the end of the summer. Um, and coincidentally, our 18-year-old happened to say, I'm coming back to Israel. I want to play hockey. I want to do some volunteer stuff on bases. And so I'll be here too. And so we were all here together, coincidentally. Um, I had no idea that he was going to be housed five blocks from where we were staying. I said to him, like, you might be cramping our style a little bit, just to be clear. Um, but the best thing is we had an opportunity to see him play in his last game before he went to volunteer. So uh, it has been such a treat to do the things we love because really my, yes, I might be a sexuality educator, but my favorite job is hockey mom and hockey rink DJ. So, I mean, that's my, that's my love. No, the hockey mom community and culture um, is huge. Um, and that's, you know, um, I have some questions later on about that. 
Um, my first question, if we just want to get right into it, um, obviously you have been on quite a few big television shows. Um, let's just run down a list here. Um, we've, like I said earlier, we've got Oprah, uh, we've got Rachel Ray, we've got Good Morning America, CBS in the Morning, The Today Show, CNN. Uh, the list kind of goes on, um, but those are just to name a few. My my question is, what is it like um, going on a show like that um, with that kind of a viewing, um, and what kind of preparation goes into an interview like that for you on your side of things? That's a great question. So a lot of, I, I started doing things on TV when I was 24, maybe something like that. So I think that the youth factor played a huge role because I was just naive enough to not realize how big it was, um, which is really important. I think I was, I want to say I was 26 or 27 when I did Oprah. I did not realize how young and liberal I was going to come off. And I really was under the impression that like I was going to Chicago. It was, I think it was 2003, January or February of 2003. And I just thought like, oh, everyone's going to really like me. I don't think they really liked me. I have to be honest, but that's, but that was okay. It was a really important learning experience. But like for me, preparation is, and I learned this over time. Um, get your questions in advance. Like, and, and some, especially live TV, isn't always going to give you them. They'll give you like certain things they might ask, but you come prepared with all of the things you want to say in ways that you want to say it. You learn the subtle art of the pivot, like, hey, that's great. Now let's talk about this. Um, but that takes skill. And I would tell you that like my first TV interview was the Montel Williams show, if anyone remembers the Montel Williams show. And I was on with Jay McGraw, Dr. Phil's son, it was a little bit of a disaster, but um, and particularly because the hair and makeup person made me look crazy. But um, and that, you know, by the way, that stresses you out, too. Like when you're not comfortable, yeah. you're thinking this is terrible. Like Everyone's going to see how uncomfortable I am. But it, it comes with time and practice. But I have to be honest, the Internet was still really young. There was no social media when I was starting. So I didn't worry about what someone's when someone was going to say. Uh, by the time I was doing some other things, and I've done some pretty conservative things. Uh, I shouldn't say that. I didn't do them. I wound up on conservative, sure. like radio and TV. And, you know, then their fa that fan base with someone like me has a few things to say about me. Not all of them are nice, but you learn to develop a very thick skin. <laughs> You know, there. me and you are kind of one and the same then, because um, I don't know if you see me play hockey, um, but uh, there's not too many people that do like me um, out on the ice. Um, but, you didn't get to, but you didn't get to play against Maverick. So yeah, like that is that is true. I did not get to play against Maverick. Um, I think I think he would have been he would have been one of the ones to like me. Um, I would have stayed away from him uh, just just because he's a great kid. Um, but yeah, no, I I know all full too well um, the uh, not having an opinion about something, which that probably being my fist on the ice uh, and ha that having that opinion not being taken uh, too kindly. Um, but speaking of um, when you talked about Married at First Sight, um, I did a little bit of research. Um, I don't have too much research, so I, I want you to explain it. A, a, explain to everyone what is Married at First Sight. Um, I know everyone knows what it is, but how does it work? How do these, how do these people get on the show? How does how does that happen? And then B, um, can you explain to people what your role on the show was? Um, and not then getting married at first <laughs> yeah, she, Dr. Logan was not getting married at first sight. Um, explain to people what your role um, was on the show and then um, how that experience was. Was it fun? Um, what, what did you like about it? What did you not like about it? So reality TV is bonkers. 
right? I mean, for so many reasons. And and I have to be honest, I I had been offered lots of things over the years. Like I, I was offered a show once. Someone wanted me to watch people have sex and then judge them. And I thought, who do you think I am? Like, no, no, under no circumstance. I mean, there were like lots of versions, shows that never actually made it to production, but lots of crazy ideas that just got progressively crazier. And I would think like, how is this my life? I just don't, I don't understand. This is not, this is not what I wanted to do. Um, And then of course, a almost crazier idea came to me and I got called by, I was called by a manager I used to work with who said to me, okay, so listen, I know you like to say no to a lot of things, but there's this show and it comes from Denmark and four social scientists arrange marriages, strangers, and they meet for the first time when they are getting married. Do you want to do it? And I thought, no. how many times have I told you under no circumstance am I doing this? And, and to her credit, she said to me, could you just watch, just watch the show? just watch it. And I said, fine. And so I watched, I think, 10 straight hours of Danish television with subtitles. And I was so riveted. Um, it was so thoughtful. It was fascinating. And and what I realized was I was watching and it, it like holds a mirror up to your own life. You start to see all the things that you do right and do wrong in relationships. And I thought, if I could do this, if I could create a transformative experience for people as viewers, I mean, not just the participants, then okay, I'll handle the nasty shit that comes back to me because I, I know what's, it's, I, I know what's at stake and I think it's good. Um, so that was, that was like the first season. Obviously, let's be honest. Once the cat is out of the bag, so to speak, you know, when people are showing up to a show called Married at First Sight in the second season, you're not just getting the ones who want to find love. You're getting the ones who are like, I want to be a reality TV star. Yeah. And that changes the dynamics a lot. It makes it a lot, lot harder. So what, um, what did you do for these, what did you do for these couples? Um, and how much interaction did you have with them? Was it certain couples? Um, and then, um, how often were you on set? I mean, how, how often were you involved with this show? What, what, what was like the, give me the breakdown of, of everything hands-on that you had to do as far as work with these, with these reality TV stars, as, as you, as you put it. And and a lot of them became, I mean, reality TV stars. They probably did not start that way. Um, So my role was as the sexuality and relationship expert. I was there to figure out what what people found attractive and not just like physical, but like who some, what, what someone's core values were, what were their non-negotiables. And I will tell you, one of the things that blew me away for the three seasons I did the show was that I would say, hey, tell me. Tell me what you find attractive in someone. And instead of like thinking about the qualities, like the real true qualities that that people couldn't live without, they would show up with a laundry list of physical attributes, like down to eye color, down to height, down to the amount of eyelashes that someone had. Like it was so absurd that at some point you, as the professional, you want to say, you do understand why you're unpartnered, right? Like if that's what you're looking for, we have like, there are a lot of other issues. Um, so I was tasked with that and to see, you know, really like even someone's political values, like, you know, what, what can you live with and what can't you like, who are you, who are your relationship role models? What kind of person are you in a relationship? And so, um, I was, I was responsible for putting together the matches with three other people based on my own lens. Um, and sometimes fighting it out in terms of who we wanted to pair together. And then, um, I met with the couples regularly. I had access to them in person on, you know, while we were filming in their homes. Also, um, 
on the phone. Uh, I was going to say, like, we didn't really use FaceTime back then. This was still a decade ago, uh, or almost a decade ago, I should say. Um, but I, I actually still have connections with a lot of the people. We still talk. We still write. I mean, I, I love them. I feel very honored that they put their trust in me in any capacity. Um, not all of them, but I mean, some of them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I did not get married at first sight. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> um, but, you know, I do understand the desire to do something crazy to find love. Um, but again, let's be honest, is the pool of uh, the pool of people who sign up to marry a stranger on television, right? Because that's the that's the other factor, doc, you know, on documented for all to see. Are they representative of the average person? Definitely not. No way. So now I have to ask one one quick question about Love is Blind, since since we're on the subject of you still have connections with some of these people. Did anybody, is anybody still married to this day that, that you matched together? Is, did anybody make it? Um, how, what's your, what's your record here? What are we, what are we, what are we working with? Yeah, that's a good question. So I was respond. Well, I mean, I, I was on for nine couples. Um, one of them, our first, our first season couple, one of them, they're still together. They have two kids. Wow. That's actually <laughs> I, it was yeah. amazing. That's I, I want to say they got married in, um, uh, March of twenty. 14, I believe was the year, right? Like they, because of shooting and when it airs, it gets a little muddy in the dates, but um, yeah, I think it's almost been 10 years. <laughs> That's, you know what? And one for nine. One for, <laughs> but to be honest, to be honest with, with the way these reality TV shows work. And I think the new one everyone's into now is love is blind, right? The whole talk to the person you're supposed to, right. you know, get to know them. Sure. And, and I think the whole thing that everybody realizes a lot in that show too, is you have to have a balance of physical and um, emotional connection. Okay which a lot of those people, it, they're, they're emotionally connected and then they go, oh, you're not my physical type. And it's, it's, it, it is the game of, can you, is that something that you can get over? Um, one for nine, I would say, based on how these shows are supposed to go and, and based on how these shows are just set up for these people to fail in my kind of opinion. I mean, it's like you said, doing something crazy for, for love is, I don't, I don't disagree with it. Um, but the, the context of everything, right? Um, it's it's not really a, a high rate of success. Um, you would you wouldn't imagine um, meeting somebody for the first time to say, "Yeah, oh, let's let's make this work." So I would say one for nine is a very good track record, um, especially since they they are happily married still with with two kids. Um, that that's that's actually really 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 cool. I'm going to flip the script a little bit okay. because I read something about you, um, some one of your initiatives um, that I don't know much about that I want you to explain to me and explain to listeners. Okay. So you're the chairman for the Caravan for Democracy Leadership Mission to Israel. Can you explain to me just what that program is and and what it does um, and and how that works? Because I know it's 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 non-Jewish students, correct? Yeah. yeah. Explain to me how that works. Okay. So. Um... I'm Jewish. Being Jewish is something I'm incredibly proud of, and I feel an intense connection to Israel and to Zionism. And I'm 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 amazingly proud of this this program called Caravan for Democracy. So, we send 80 non-Jewish student leaders on college campuses to Israel every year on a leadership mission. It is not a propaganda tour. They see the whole country. They meet with lots of diverse speakers. They get a chance to experience Israel through their own eyes. Um, unfortunately, the conversations on college campuses around Israel are often highly polarizing, not even remotely based in fact. It's it's like these ridiculous um, 
very, you know, no one likes to call it anti-Semitic, very anti-Semitic lenses. Um, and we want people who really want to experience a country, who want to see things through their own eyes, ask real questions, but, but, but can take an experience and then actually transform their experience to other people. And so this past December, we run it through Jewish National Fund USA. That's the uh, organization who runs it. Uh, we hit the 700 mark. We've hit, we've sent over 700 non-Jewish student leaders on college campuses to Israel. And they are amazing. And they are, they're working in all different, you know, in all different industries, some politics, some journalism, sustainability, Holocaust education, state government, local government, uh, food, I mean, everything. Um, so it is a, it has been a joy to be a part of a program like that. No, that is, that's absolutely amazing. Um, and I think it's, there's a connection with, to that, not di directly, but indirectly with the hockey league is I'm not Jewish. Um, you know, the only reason I'm out here is because I know someone who was Jewish and, and the, the, the guy who, excuse me, runs the league. Um, so I, I'm not Jewish. Um, the only reason I'm out here is because I know someone who was Jewish. Um, but, I am fully in love with this country and, and fully in love with the culture and, and the people um, and everything out here. Um, so I think it, it's, it's, it's a great learning experience to, to not just go overseas, um, but for, you know, I would say, um, I, I obviously I come from a heavily Christian background. Um, it, it was great for me to see both sides of things and to see the connection between everything and everyone. Um, which I never really realized and saw with my own eyes until last summer when I came out here. Um, but it, that's, that's really, really, really cool. Um, are you still the chairman? Is that something that you're still a part of? Um, where, where, what are the goals for this five years down the road? Um, what are we, what are we looking to do is, is, are we, are we good with what we're doing or are we looking to kind of up the ante a little bit? Where, where do we want to see this go? No, that's a, that's a great question. So by the way, you, you should know that the reason, um, you know, non-Jewish student leaders are the part that's so important is really that the, we, we started the program or, or had it created a scholarship for my, for my grandparents, but my grandfather was an American uh, Jewish and Zionist leader and was super involved in a lot of organizations. And we wanted to honor him with the things that he loved, right? Leadership, education, and Israel. And so as we were thinking about what we wanted to do, truth be told, it was my husband who was not born Jewish who said, you know, Jewish students have access to birthright, a lot of family trips, you know, Jewish families come to Israel. What about, you know, what about those of us who this place is so important and so exciting and, and, and not, I mean, not just for religious reasons, for, for all the reasons, um, what do you think? And we all looked at each other around this big table and said, oh my God, that's it. <laughs> like, of course, of course, of course, of course. And again, like, even when we talk about broader conversations about Israel or, or anti-Semitism with a capital A, you know, Jews can't do this alone, right? This requires everyone. So it was so important. So um, I am still the chair. Um, I love it. We are, we are interviewing now, even when I'm in Israel with the, with the seven hour time difference back to, to, you know, my home base. Um, you know, we, we always want to be bigger and better. And, um, you know, I want to be able to have cohorts from the last, we've been running 13 years to come back and meet at JNF's global conference in Denver this year and to have conversations and, and have continuing opportunities for education and reunions. Um, I had the, I had the privilege of being on the bus for a few days with the caravan students this year here in Israel. And it's, it's extraordinary to watch people see this country for the first time and to realize how many things they've been told are just 
wrong, right? Don't match the actual experience. And to see the struggle with that and have to ask questions, it's a really magical thing. So I love what we're doing. I mean, who knows? Maybe we will get a lot of attention and, and fundraise and be able to take 120 people next year. Who knows? But um, you know, I, I would love to I would love to run two trips a year, a summer trip and a winter trip. Who knows? Uh, there's a, there's always time to do more and be better and bigger. Um, but it is it is a an absolute joy, something I am probably the most proud of of all the things that I do. That's wonderful, and thank God that you were on a caravan uh, full of student leaders and not the degenerate hockey players. Um, I wouldn't want you nowhere near any of those buses. Um, oh, by the way, you should know that when. when when my husband and I went to see the game and we were at it at midnight, we realized we couldn't get a car home. And I thought, what are we going to do? And so Mav came out and was like, you know, you could take the bus home with all of us. And I thought, under no circumstance am I taking the bus home with all of you. Absolutely not. You you just made the best decision of your entire life. Um, I, I of, of, of the married at first sight of all of all the decisions that you made, that was by far the best decision that you ever made. So I have a question. Um, I want you to speak about the, the, the dedication um, that you have to promoting healthy and positive messages about sexuality and relationships. Um, where did that come from? Um, I know you, you spoke earlier about, you know, your parents, you know, really kind of not force it upon you, but really kind of present, presented it to you at a very er, you know, early age yeah. and, and, but in a, in a healthy and, and positive way. Um, so other than that, where does that desire, where does that just dedication to, to just that kind of niche come from? So it's funny because my parents aren't still to the state, they're not super liberal. It's just that there was, you know, there was this giant health crisis that all of a sudden fueled conversations. It was this magical blip in time where even if you had never talked to your kids about sex before, there was this scary thing. And all of a sudden, families were saying, oh, shit, we're, we're sending off our, our kids off into the world unprepared. We can't do that. Right. So that's that's how this started. But I think that um, to be perfectly honest, it was a matter of me finding the thing that I was good at talking about and what I was passionate about. And and. I'm not going to tell you I was like passionate about sex as a 15 year old. I mean, I had lots of questions and lots of things I wanted to do, but like it wasn't like that, that wasn't really a career goal back then. But um, I was really raised to use my voice and be unapologetic. And so I, I've learned to that I'm really good at having uncomfortable conversations. That's kind of my brand, right? Whether it's uncomfortable conversations about sex, uncomfortable conversations about Israel, like that's who I am. Um, and so what I what I saw growing up that, I mean, that basically lit the fire to talk about sex in a way that was empowering and pleasure-focused and equitable um, and not any of the ways that most of us were, were raised, quite honestly, uh, it was because I, I really... I went to college and I watched my peers, my friends, my girlfriends in particular, um, who were super smart independent young women make the worst fucking choices when it came to sex. And it wasn't like not using condoms, bad decisions. It was no pleasure, no reciprocation, partners that just sucked in every way. And they were like taking it. And I thought, and by the way, I, I would in include myself in part of that group. And I just thought like, this, this is not, I feel like this is not what it, this is supposed nope. to be about. Um, even the concept of talking about masturbation. Right. Everyone was like, we don't want, no, 
well, that's that's your first mistake <laughs> right there. Do not rely on someone else for your pleasure. Uh, but that's that's really how it started. Is that I I felt like there was this dialogue missing, and I was thinking about who could who was out there, and certainly Dr. Ruth was the biggest name, and I am in, in forever indebted to the work that she has done as a pioneer in this field. But at the time, because again, this was like not like early early internet, there weren't a lot of people especially young women who were speaking unapologetically about sex. And so I looked around and I thought, okay, let's, let's see what we can do. And so here I am. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's very, very, very interesting. Um, and I think, I think it's funny how you brought up the, the, the masturbation word, right? I coach 14 youth select hockey. Um, and you know, the parents will, it's, it's almost like they're making jokes, but they're almost like inquisitive at the same time. Like, why is my 13 year old taking 30 minute showers? And it's like, well, you know, can you guess? I mean, I, I can, I can think of one thing off the top of my mind, why, why that's happening. And I, but I think that just goes back to the uncomfortability. Um, people bring things up in different ways. And I think for some of those parents bringing it up in that way and kind of inquisitive, but they also kind of know it. they just need a little bit of reassurance, um, which is weird that you need, but, but it's, it's funny at the same time. Um, I think, I think we also have to laugh about stuff like that too. Um, there's a lot of humor in, in things like that. Um, so. By the way, you can't talk about sex without it being funny too. Like there's, there's no, but whether, whether I'm working with kids, teens, college students, adults, and I do a lot of parenting and caregiving resource work. Um, there is something innately funny and awkward. And by the way, I will tell you, it is the one question that I keep getting, particularly from young people uh, that that really, I will say, troubles me immensely. Uh, they always say to me like, Logan, how do we talk about pleasure without being awkward? How do we do this without being awkward? And like, the word awkward comes up as if it is the most horrible thing in the entire world. And I think I've thought to myself, and finally, I just looked at them all and said, who told you that sex isn't awkward? Like, it's, very awkward. it's awkward. There are weird noises. There are weird sounds. There could be weird odors. Like, there's, it's, there are bodily fluids. Like, there's talking about your body, what feels good. None of these things come naturally. Like, I don't care how much TV and Netflix you watch. Like, no one talks like that. It's awkward, and that's okay, and there's something really valuable. But they're so deeply afraid of not having this, like, prowess about talking about sex. I'm like, that is bullshit. No one does that. Yeah. Even adults don't do that. We're all still uncomfortable at the end, even if we're, we've more practice. Yeah. I, I think when it comes to sex, everybody, no matter how old you get or how much you've done it or how many partners you've had or what the deal is, you're always a little bit insecure and you're always a little bit uncomfortable. If you say no, you're, you're, that's just more insecurities that you're just kind of putting, kind of putting off. But, but speaking of that, so I do want to get into, because you obviously are raising two young uh, human beings. Um, you ra you're raising a young daughter and you're also raising a, a, a young male hockey player as well. Um, so I, I want to look at things from a hockey mom perspective, right? Um, I, I want to know what you would consider to be some main differences in raising an adolescent male hockey player compared to a mom who may have some adolescent female hockey players. And what advice do you have for them as far as regards to relationships and sexuality is there a do you see differences in especially with some athletes on on ways they should be raised or ways they should be talked to or is it just all the same that's such such an important question so i oh, i can't even do the mic right um so i really subscribe to the philosophy of no double standards right if something is good for my son it is definitely good for my daughter and vice versa 
And I think that so many of the challenges that we have about sexuality, about consent, about desire, about confidence come from this idea that when it comes to sex and dating in particular, based on your gender, you're not entitled to the same thing, right? It's what prevents us from speaking up. It prevents us from being able to freely and enthusiastically consent. It prevents us from, you know, saying like, by the way, could you, could you do what you were doing before? <laughs> not right now. All of that stuff, right? And if, if we all felt good about the voice that we had, I think we'd be better off. Also, obviously, like I hate the word slut or any incarnation of it. I think the concept of like judging someone for what they look like or what you think they might have done once, which we're never right. You know, the one thing about sex is no one tells you the truth. Whether they're 5, 15, 55, 105, you never know the whole story unless you were there. And quite frankly, if you were there and judging them, then you're just an asshole, right? Like you were a part of it. You suck. Um, but, you know, I, I think that I will tell you, and and Maverick definitely remembers this. He must have been, God, he must have been a peewee. And they were playing an all-girls team that was a year older than them. And the girls were fearless. They were fearless. They were losing, but they had endurance, which, you know, as adult women, we're like, don't ever count out the girls. They will come back. And, and the, the boys just thought, like, we're going to run the tables with them. And these girls just fought. And they were physical and fearless. And they came back and won. And all of the mothers were cheering for the girls' teams. And the boys came off the ice like, I can't believe you're not cheering for us. We're like, we're not. Because that was awesome. <laughs> you know, re remember, like, remember what it takes to be out there against you guys. You guys think you're awesome. But these girls are... They're fighters and they have energy and stamina and all of the qualities that you, you know, need to, to learn. Um, the one thing I will say about, about the sort of the, the dynamic of genders and, and, and we always had up and really up until checking and maybe one year with checking. Um, you know, we, we always had at least one girl on the team. And I'll tell you, she was always the toughest one out there. Always. And it was, it was incredible. And it was incredible. And I think it's an important reminder for everyone in the locker room never to count someone out. Um, and that we all have different skill sets. But it is a joy. And I, I have to say, I love watching girls' teams play. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just so much fun. And I'll tell you, our daughter, um, when she she's – I mean, she's not a hockey player. And the reason she's not, quite honestly, is when she was – I think three, we had her on the ice and she had her hockey skates on. And I, I mean, she used to wear like a pink tutu over all of the gear. It was awesome. Like we had like yeah. stickers on her helmet. She was, it was great. And she has, you know, this awesome center of gravity. She core strength, unbelievable. And when she was doing, she and another girlfriend were doing this intro to hockey weekend, every weekend, the little boys, all they wanted to do was knock the girls over and take them out at their feet and they would fall back. And finally she like skated off the ice and looked at us and said, I did not sign up for this. I didn't, I was not here for that. And I almost feel like if I had said to her, mouth off to the boys. Or wait till you're 15. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it'd be different. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it'd be different. Yeah. Um, I think that's funny that you, that you mentioned that. Um, wonderful. Oh. Well, we were just uh, provided with refreshments. I very much appreciated. Um, I think it's funny you mentioned that. Um, with my select teams, um, my 14 new teams, um, girls at, at some ages can play down in age group. Um, if there's ever a girl at my tryout, I take her um, because she's bar none the better skater. Um, and she may not be as skilled, but she's tougher. And then when it comes to off the ice, 
the level of maturity between a 14 year old and 15 year old girl and a 13 year old boy turning 14 is incredible. And I never saw it until I started coaching three years ago. It's incredible. It is, it is almost like you're dealing with toddlers and then you're dealing with a full grown adult female at the same time. It is, it is wild to see. And they even look at them like you're like, you're a baby. Like you're like, I'm, I'm a year older than you and and you are a baby. And, and then I think the other funny dynamic at, at maybe you can speak to a little bit about this and, and how this, how this happens is the dynamic of half of my 14 U team hitting puberty and then the other half doesn't. And so the other half start realizing like, oh, like we we're into girls. And then the other half is like, girls, like what, what, what are boobs? You know, it's, it's, it's the most funniest, it's the most funniest interaction or dynamic. And I'm sure, you know, you're growing up with Mav, you kind of saw those, like that kind of different, uh, aspects of, of people hitting puberty at different times and and different things. Um, do you have any funny stories? Not of Mav, because I'm not going to put him on blast. Um, do you have any funny stories just of, of or, or things that you've seen um, about that, that di- dynamic like that? Well, I think, look, let's be honest, all of puberty is funny, right? Every, every aspect of it. And I think what people forget is it's a five to seven year process. Like it's a long fucking time. By the way, it's a long time for the adults living with these kids. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. And if you've more than one, you're like just in constant. It's like a decade plus of like drama. Um but yeah, so it's five to seven years of nothing at a pace that is manageable, right? You can't control anything. You don't know how people are going to respond emotionally. Um, you don't know how they're going to develop. You know, it's it's hard, especially when when hockey starts to get really physical and you desperately want to be physical, but you you know your your body's in there yet. Although I'll tell you, the toughest players we always saw weren't the biggest. <laughs> they were the ones who were smaller and scrappier, and were like, I know that I'm going to get my ass kicked, so I'm going to go out there and I'm going to swing. You know, that does, that does happen. <laughs> that does happen occasionally. Um, so it, puberty is like the great equalizer in so many ways for people um, because there's no, there's no plan. I will say one of the things that's interesting. So as a, you know, as a sexuality educator and as a hockey mom is, you know, there's so much machismo and sort of like inherent, like heterosexuality and like it talk in locker rooms. Right. Yeah. And we start to see some of that changing, like the things that I, I've been impressed with the things that will no longer be tolerated in locker rooms and on the ice. Right. Because it's, you know, homophobic language, all of that just like nastiness creates a dynamic where no one, no one feels safe in a locker room, even if they don't identify in any particular way. Right. It just makes people feel really uncomfortable. So, um, I like that, that kids are willing to call stuff out now and say, even if they, even if they're young and can't say it to someone's face, you know, they'll go up and say like, that made me really uncomfortable. I don't really like that. Um, and so I think we're getting better. We're definitely not there yet. Like we've definitely had experiences on the ice where we hear words about, all sorts of characteristics, right? Used and we're like, did, I'm sorry, what? Um, but I think that they're learning that if they want, if they really want to be a team, right, then they have to treat each other with respect. And so um, it doesn't always happen, but I think we're getting a little bit better at it. I, I would say it's, you know, it's, it almost sounds hypocritical, but to me, it's just growth. Um, there are things that I said when I was a kid in locker rooms that if I heard my players say today, I would, I, it, the reprimand would be horrible. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's, it makes me feel bad, but at the same time, it, it's growth. You know what I mean? Um, we, we live and we learn, um, and, and culture and, and society changes. 
it, and it doesn't excuse it. Um, but but I think what it is now is it's made me very self aware of when it is going around going on around me, and it's my especially when it's my team. My team is never um, sorry, guys. I hate to say it, they're never the most skilled. Um, we don't win the most games, um, but when we go through rinks and when we're in locker rooms, um, they are expected to act um, a certain way. Um, and I'm very much a hard ass uh, when they don't. Because um, I also come from the time uh, when safe sport wasn't a thing. And I had coaches grabbing me by the cage and, and, and yanking me either which way. And, and you know, and yeah, yeah, it's yeah. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a completely different day and age, but for the better. Um, I think, I think the psyche of young athletes has changed. Um, I, I don't want to say, I, I, I actually hate when people say it's, it's a softer mindset. It's a different mindset. I think, I think a lot of, I think a, a lot of young adolescents, especially athletes are just more self-aware. And like you talked about earlier, I think now we're, we're raising them to have a voice from day one, not just when they're 24. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't think it's soft. I, I think it is, it is, it's just different. Um, and, and I think if you can't get with the times as far as, you know, changing your mindset and the way you coach a hockey team, regardless of the age, then you just don't need to do it. Um, because it's only going to keep evolving. Um, and if you want to use the word soft, it's mostly probably going to keep getting softer because people in this world are just going to keep becoming more self-aware at an earlier age. Right. And they're going to have a voice at an earlier age and it's not going to change. Um, so it's just kind of get with the program. So you say, you, you said something about, you know, like the, your, the records not being the best. One of my, I, I've, I've done a lot of writing over the years and I think my, one of my favorite, the most favorite articles I've ever written was from Maverick's first squirt season. We were, we lost, our record was like zero, 30 and one, right? Like for, for, for months. And I was so impressed with how these kids came out every game, right? And they were like, we're going to try again. And we're at every practice. It was, it was such an extraordinary thing to see. And then when they finally won that first game, it, you know, it was just incredible. They were so thrilled, but they, they knew why they were there and they were working hard. And even when the parents were like, I don't know why we're doing this anymore, a whole group of other parents was like, because they're young and you're teaching them about perseverance and resilience. And look, let's be honest. When they're nine and 10, does your record really matter? Like you're not going to figure out who's going to the pro pros in nine and 10. And by the way, those are, as a, as a hockey parent, I can tell you, those are the worst parents, right? When every, when everyone thinks that like my kid is the best, you're like, in New York, you're like, I got to be honest with you. I don't think the big show's really happening for you. Like I, if I mean, if the, if I'm wrong, I will publicly admit that I'm yeah. wrong. But I I just feel like maybe we're putting a lot of expectations yeah. on your nine year old. Yeah. Just saying. And, and I think it, not even life, especially with hockey too, especially at the adolescent ages, the biggest thing is development. Um, and and without getting too too nerdy, coachy, right? Like you talked about, I have parents all the time. We're gonna go play here because they win. Well, he's 13 and he's gonna be on a fourth line. What good is that? What good is that really doing him? You know what I mean? When he's playing junior hockey or when he's playing AAA hockey or when he's playing at a higher level, nobody in his locker room is going to say, hey, how many games did you win when you were 12? Nobody cares. No one gives a shit. You know what I mean? And it's the funniest. It's the funniest attitude to me. It, it, it's wild to me. And like I said, it's bad in Texas. I can only imagine how bad it is in New York sometimes with 
just because of the skill and talent and the, the amount of hockey that's that's played up there compared to to Texas. But, but, but you, give me give me a crazy hockey parent story. One I, one crazy. I mean, there have been. So- don't, don't name names. <laughs> I mean, we've seen fights. We've had a lot of. I mean, there was. We had. We used to play one team that used to bring a cowbell to every game, and I'm like, oh my god, the cowbell! And and they used to beat us like eleven to zero, and the cowbell kept ringing. But I will tell you, the one time there there's there's one time in particular that I remember I really wanted to hit someone. Like, <laughs> okay, so there may have been more than one time. The one I remember was actually. I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of. Um, there, there. I think it was. I think it was Mavs first. Year. It was a squirt year, and we were playing in Philadelphia. And we, and I told you, like, we were. This was a year where we were really like the bad news bears. Like, we were just a mess. But like, all they wanted to do was play. They were so excited. And we show up to this team. The entire team, all the parents are wearing matching sweatshirts. They're car- matching beer koozies. They're all drinking, and they all think their kids are going pro. Every single one of them. And, okay, so it might have been the junior team of a team the Rangers really don't like in Philadelphia. <laughs> that could be something, too. But I just remember, like, I, I am I am loud, okay? I am loud on the ice. My, If you asked Maverick at any point in time, he will say, oh, I can hear my mother on the ice. Like, I know I know her voice. Everyone says, they, he can't hear you. I'm like, oh, no, he can hear me. He knows exactly what I'm saying. And, but I'm, I'm never screaming against the kids. Like, that's, that, that's so shitty. And, and by the way, they were nine. And all of these parents on the other team next to me are, like, not just cheering against our team, but saying, like, beat the shit out of him. Knock him into the boards. Nine. And I just thought one mom came over to me from our team and said, I, I, they're really saying horrible things about our kids. And I just walked over and I stood next to this mother and I just looked at her. Just I kept looking at her. I'm like, you're going to say something? She, she, you know, she like rolled her eyes and that and I almost got into a fight on a line for merchandise at a tournament once (laughs) trying to save a pregnant woman from being thrown off line. Well, no, I mean, there was a whole group of parents and there was this pregnant woman who was in line in front of me and this group pushed in front of her and she just sort of looked at me. I'm like, no, you were waiting. Like, this is ridiculous. And so I turned around. I said, excuse me, we were on line in front of you. Guy looks at me, the guy looks at me and says, Oh, you're so important. We we need to wait for you. And I thought, I, I don't think you really want to do this. Like, this is a line for a sweatshirt, like an iron-on sweatshirt. Yeah. This is not really all that exciting. The, the best part about it is that we wound up playing them, and we smoked them 11 to 0. And I just looked at him from across the way. <laughs> Especially in hockey, revenge is a dish best served cold. Yeah. Um, that's that definite. Yeah, extra, extra icy. Um, so I, I have one last question. I uh, I can't thank you enough for the time so far. Um, I have one last question, and this is you know the boys want to know your your professional opinion. Why am I a psychopath? Why why do uh, why uh, why am I this way off the ice, and then uh, I'm on the ice, um, and I can just why why am I able to uh, flip the switch from from the uh, violence and the aggressiveness to being able to have a, a professional adult conversation um where does that come from um and i don't want to know the boys want to know the boys are very interested on, on as to why stinchy is a psychopath so if you could just give your professional opinion that would be wonderful okay well the good news is i can't give my like professional therapeutic sure. opinion because sure. I'm, i would not do that so I, I think and it's something that i've always told the kids particularly you know when you're in a a sport or something where you have to be able to turn it on and think a new way um 
you know, having this alter ego is, is, is kind of exciting, right? Because you get to go out there and be someone different than you are in your everyday life and create a persona. And by the way, that takes away sometimes some of the fear or nerves or anxiety because you, you know I'm coming in like this. So, I mean, I, I, I always encourage the kids, like, you're an athlete. Who do you want to be? Like, create a character for yourself. You know, if you don't want to be the same kid who's sitting in math class, then don't be. Find something. So I don't, I don't, I don't think having an alter ego is the worst thing. Hopefully you just spend more time on the ice and less in the box. <laughs> Listen, I, if, if, if creating a character is, is the key, then I have definitely, uh, I have definitely created a character for myself, uh, over the years. Um, I, and yeah, I, I, uh, I think there's times even I recognize that um, I'm like, man, I took that one a little too far or uh, 30 seconds after the fact, I'm like, eh, maybe shouldn't have said that. Or <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it's, um, should I have sent that message? Ah, no, I'll just leave it. Eight people liked it. It's all good. It does It's, it's whatever. It's, it's, it's how I am. Um, but, but I think to um, it is, it is important to be able to self-recognize. Right. Um, I, I do know when I cross the line and I, like I said, 10 seconds after the fact, I'm like, oh, that was dumb, but you know, yeah, but that's that's me. It's me. Um, it's me. It's listen, it's been me my entire life. Um, I got into a big fight in a high school game one time and on the car ride home, my mom looked at me and said, I think you like doing this. And I said, I think I do too. I'm just going to be honest with you. <laughs> I was like 14 or 15. Um, but I, you know, I was also the kid at, in 14 U triple A trials. I was asking kids to fight now that was, but that was also a different day and age, um, than, than what it, what it is now. But I think I you know, one of the things that I love and, you know, in a different way of, of this like character creation is, so Mav will tell you, I was the hockey DJ for a lot of games. I am a giant music nerd. I spend hours and hours on the hockey playlist and every playlist, making sure it's at exactly the right moment. I really do it for like the adults too, because I feel like if you're giving up every Saturday night of your life, you have to enjoy the music too. Um, but the other thing it does is, and I would always ask Mav to ask his teammates, like, what are your, what are your friends? Like, what's the thing that gets in their head that they're like, I can go out there and like, just kill it. Right. And so that's part of it too. It's creating the drama around it because not every kid can just turn it on, you know, when they get on the ice, they sometimes you need some other things. And so, um, I think it's a good lesson for all of us to think about like, what's the thing that makes us feel our best or powerful or strong. And then we just need to use it to our advantage. I, I would say I do. Um, I would definitely say I use it to my advantage. Um, Dr. Levkoff, I can't thank you enough for for the interview. Um, hopefully, I didn't take up too much of your time. No, um, I like really no, no. It's this is Tel Aviv. The humidity is 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 coming for the evening. Um, the protests are, are wild and and free outside right now. Uh, is it crazy? It's crazy. Um, so no, but again, I can't thank you enough. Um, it, I I think everyone's gonna be a little bit surprised when they see this episode drop and go how you idiot how did you get this what what happened what happened there and it, it's you know uh, sees an opportunity that i saw an opportunity and yeah it, yeah it's it's you know and and i love the connection between um the hockey mom the hockey community um that whole thing um so you want to give people real quick um in case you know they don't follow you already how can they follow you on social media how can they reach you that kind of thing so i like to say you know how you're a different personality on the ice than off so it I'm a different personality depending on which social media platform you follow me. <laughs> so I'm really charming on Instagram, which is at Logan Levkoff. I'm a little bit angrier um, on Twitter at Logan Levkoff. And my TikToks are really just a 
ongoing display of all, me responding to the grotesque things people say about me. And that's, I think that's at, is that at Dr. Logan Lampkoff or I think it's at Dr. Logan. It's not that hard. If you see like lots of views on people saying horrible things about me, that's, that's where you'll find me. So I, but I, again, like different platforms, turn it on different ways. It's fun. <laughs> no, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like professional wrestling, right? You gotta have, you gotta have, you gotta have a couple personas in the bag or you gotta, you know, you gotta, you... The, core, yeah. the core has to be the same. The core has to be the same. Right. But, um, you know, the way in which you use it, it's okay for it to be different. I love it. I love it. I can't thank you enough for this. Um, that is the Flowscape podcast. That is Dr. Logan Levkoff. Uh, if you don't already go give her a follow. If you don't already give us a follow, um, like subscribe everywhere. See YouTube, Spotify, uh, Apple podcasts, wherever you get your podcast from. Um, I will let you know when this episode drops. We can't thank you enough. Um, that is the Flowscape podcast. We will see everybody later. Mm -hmm.